welcome to Puchica Voz. This is Sandra, and I'm really excited to have a guest host this week, which is someone that we had on for our Central American Art as Resistance Roundtable discussion. And guest host, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Gabriela. You guys can call me Gabby. <laughs> Refer to me as Gabby, please. Um, and I'm excited to, to be on the pod. I'm a big fan uh, mm-hmm. of your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> can, you, can you give me a, a brief uh, in- intro of who you are? I know like maybe some people didn't listen to the episode. Okay, yeah. yeah. People might know, um, but you are what you do. So I professionally do uh, political organizing and then in my downtime privately but publicly on the internet do a lot of illustration work um, and I work under the name Smug Morenita and I'm from the Mission District born and raised and still work and live in San Francisco and I'm half Salvadorian half Nicaraguan as well what? <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah. so because Gabby is going to be our guest host uh, we're also going to just like go in and talk about our week. Yeah. What is your shit and what is your giggle, Gabby? What do you mean? Like, there's like, like what was the rough part of my week and like? Yes. Yeah. So our shit and giggle is yeah. Well, it's like Rosenthorn. I don't know if you know Rosenthorn. Shit and giggle. Oh yeah, yeah. Like yeah. the yeah. I see what you're doing. Okay. <laughs> the like, rough and like what you the okay. good part of your week. Good so bad. I would say like the rough part is just like getting ready for the week. I'm currently working a campaign. And so doing that and also managing like my personal um, and like private pursuits is like has been really difficult, um, but I'm getting there. And then, yeah, that was just like a rough, rough part. But the giggle was at last Friday. You were also there. Sorry. And it was great. But I had uh, I launched my website, smokemonita.com, shameless plug. And it was great. We were like all in community. There was a marimbero my friends who I danced with in the folklore group Charles Danza for Nicaragua performed. We had prints available and we were at artillery gallery where we had all my art framed and it was the first time I saw my art framed in multiples and that was crazy. Uh, it was cool and it was just nice going back to where I started because that is where I started and two blocks from my house. So that was yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. It was really cool seeing it and I got there like really early <laughs> and helped set up a little bit, not a lot. And no, yeah, you helped, you, you helped, your you prints, sh- I was like, yeah, 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 looking good, you know. <laughs> Thank you. And then uh, shout out to Freddie. Uh, I like met Freddie there. Just shout out to Freddie. Yeah, shout out to Freddie. He's great. He's a good friend of mine, and he does a lot of great also organizing outside of his own professional work, and is a big advocate for the Salvadorian like Central American community. So. Shout out to you, Freddie. Shout out to Freddie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was it was good. It was like a lot. I was super tired. And you were super tired. We were I was all super tired. tired, yeah. But I I was really excited. I had never seen Nicaraguan folklore, which was dope. Yeah, it was it was just good. It was and then you had platano frito, you had no no, no you had sorry. You had queso, queso frito, frito yeah. and then you had tostones and yeah. then what else did you have? There was like a salad also. Salad. I didn't get to taste any of it, but I saw. I think there was also yuca, maybe. I think. Oh yeah, there was yuca too. There was yuca. Um, it was good. But it looked like a great spread. Oh, and then we had this raffle, which was really great. Mm-hmm. And it was like all. So it went through levels, right? Third beer, second place was wine, and first was like, flor and prince with all of them, and it was cool. It was just really cool seeing like people who weren't aren't Nicaraguan actually sit in community and like just be present with Nicaraguan people because I think that even though you know there is and we, we talked about it in the last episode how 
the mission has a Central American like history, um, but to actually have Central Americans take up that much space was incredible. And I think it, it's really been like the first time I've been in that space outside of just being in solely Nicaraguan spaces. Like mm-hmm. now there was people from all nationalities of all parts of the like Latino um, diaspora. So that was that was cool. Yeah, it was fun. But now we're retired. Yeah, yeah, super tired. And Uh, okay, so for me, my week was like it was okay. I just came back from being in the south for like the second time this year, which is wild. Why am I in the south? When (laughs) I was in Nashville, I saw family that I hadn't seen in over ten years. It was a lot. They're from El Salvador, and it was good. I hadn't seen. I was visiting primarily like primas that I hadn't seen since they were like five. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like I don't even know who you are. I mean, I know who you are, but like I don't. And like reconnecting. I, yeah. Yeah. And it was good. Like it actually was very comfortable, and like we were very comfortable with each other, and they felt like fam. Like they actually felt like family, and I definitely called out a good amount of toxic masculinity while I was there. So that was like my giggle and then this week i also like got to spend almost like two to three days with gabby yeah it was just (laughs) gabby's pad but like my shit was during my trip and during the trip that i just had to mexico to visit my mom's family i feel like i had to defend my father a lot Mm -hmm. because people were constantly talking about how my father is like a very negative person and how he's a very critical regañón that's like what they call him uh, that's all they always say and then I and I I mean I always tell them I was like well if you think he fucking te regaña a ti like what about me like yeah. <laughs> imagine living with this man for 20 plus years you know so I've been trying to contextualize like how I see my family and like how my dad is definitely this is not just with me this is like a mm-hmm. personality trait mm-hmm. because he does this with multiple family members and I don't know I was defending him a lot because I was like I don't know why you're criticizing him when we got, like, this, like, abusing-ass, like, uncle, this alcoholic other mm-hmm. uncle, like, this uh, person who is, like, this, this other person like that. Like, at the end of the day, doesn't my dad support all of you? Like, I got super, like, defensive about it because I think I finally have gotten to the point where I've healed enough to be able to, like, see why my dad is so hyper, not hypercritical, but he has so many expectations because his life was constantly in shambles. Like, mm-hmm. he was fleeing he was a child soldier he like fled the war like he was forced to like leave his entire family at a really young age and like and now he sees like his brothers as abusers and like as womanizers mm-hmm. and just like family members murdering family, family members getting incarcerated like yeah. there is no like end of trauma in like sight for my dad and it's it's just been really complicated like navigating this with like other family members who like don't see that and then I'm, I'm like at the end of the day doesn't he take care of you and i've been getting super defensive about it and then i'm kind of like you think he like gets mad at you like i'll get mad at you you know mm-hmm. it, it just gets like upsetting to me and I'm, and now i'm i'm like dealing with this like internally and that's something that i've been thinking about a lot like how he is someone that i really do see as like flawed but i definitely don't see him as an abuser i definitely don't see him as like someone i always see him as someone that is always going to be supportive and everyone is like terrified of my dad like everyone thinks he's like a very serious like aggressive not aggressive but just serious and hard to like understand and i mean like living with him and like me and my mom are like hyper independent Mm -hmm. people 
and we have gotten to the point where we are able to stand up to him and be like well why did you say that or things like that and my dad backs off and now to the point where he doesn't i mean he still definitely criticizes random things that i do but not to the extent of, of of any like he used to do when i was younger and now i'm able to like question him again like him back and he'll stop and I don't know, like, how he takes that, but I think he has definitely gotten to a point where he sees how much it hurts, like, other people. And, like, I want him to understand, like, there are some people who are just, like, permanently, like, on their own path. And, like, if they want to live, like, a vida de desmadre, well, like, that's their life, you know? Mm-hmm. And it hurts, but that's it. But, like, my life isn't a vida de desmadre as much as I, like might want it to be <laughs> and it's just hard you know so that's something that i've been grappling with all week is like that's understanding sorry that's a rough week <laughs> i know right this is like really deep but just like thinking about your family like my family my dad's family is like not is is not a united front like it's not it's super scattered like it is a mess like i have very 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 disgusting family members like, i'll be real mm-hmm. and i'm pretty sure hella people do too so just like knowing that and acknowledging that and me straight up being like ¿Y él es mujer, ¿y qué? like mm-hmm. ¿y qué? i literally said like los hombres son basura to like mm-hmm. my uncle he like looked at me hella uncomfortably and i'm like ¿Y qué? like me vale like what you mm-hmm. say about me and at the end of the day i came here i like put in my own money and i'm here like you mm-hmm. can't t- say shit to me right yeah. so that's kind of how I was where I felt like I was also proving myself and that I am an independent woman like I feel and, like that happens a lot right yeah like when you especially when you talk to like uh when you connect with um, people outside your nuclear family whatever that looks like for each person mm-hmm. having to like claim your identity and like your convictions and saying men are trash around like brown men <laughs> especially like traditional hurt. brown men it's like it's it's not even radical to them it's like beyond that so yeah i can see why that's tough do you have a giggle if my giggle was like being with you and seeing my family oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay cool that's awesome i started off with like a good note and like uh, i ended with like a really rough note okay. <laughs> so yeah sorry i know i go zero to 100 but that's me <laughs> that's though me. but that's me though yeah so gabby what song did you bring for us this week Hold on, you can't. <laughs> I don't know this I don't remember the the name. I just know that I have it on my um, Spotify somewhere. When I'm with him, that one. Yes. We're talking about the same song, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so good. The music video is so good. To be honest, Sandra, you put me on to to her. She's amazing. Uh, she's just like so beautiful, like with her art and herself. And I just liked it. It's catchy, and I think it's cool to kind of see, like, her go into mainstream a little bit mm-hmm. and, like, actually identify with her um, and be like, yeah, I see, like, I see parts of, like, of me in you. Yeah. Um, and I just think it's just, like, it's just cool. Like, it's just, like, Dan, like I, I know we, like, talk about re- representation. The idea of that is kind of, like, saturated a little bit in the way we talk about that. But actually seeing someone in a genre of music that I like is dope and it's good and it's good it's yeah. not even just that it's like oh well we're just gonna settle for for this because yeah we identify with it. it's actually like we don't have to like that's the, the i think that's why i like her so much because it's like i didn't have to settle for anything it's more of like we got what we deserve yeah <laughs> like really no, great i feel the same exact way yeah. um and even just i think like seeing her content on the internet i'm like this is something i'm happy to consume like it's great
So I love that music video. <laughs> There's a beautiful scene with her just laying on like what is it, blue roses? It's like blue paper flowers. Oh, I'm maybe from sure. this angle. Maybe from this angle from the screen, it looked like just straight up real flowers. But I was like, that I'm looks pretty sure they're papel, like like paper. They flowers. have to be right, because or else you have to dye all those flowers. <laughs> like you have to dye them blue. And I was like, damn, that's wild. But yeah, it probably was. But just that scene in itself, I think there's something about her that it's like the comfortable for me. It's like the video itself was like very femme, right? Yeah. But her attitude isn't like it's mm-hmm. the it's like the it's like you're non-conventionally femme. Yeah, um, attitude, and I just really appreciate that because it's refreshing. And I think to see like a brown woman behind that is really cool. I think that's why I just really love it. So thank you for yeah. putting me on. <laughs> I feel like her aesthetic is definitely growing into be in being more of like her roots. Like definitely her music beforehand, there were references to her being like from Los Angeles and from, and be like from be from a Latina perspective and like Honduran mm-hmm. but it definitely has been manifesting a lot more these days and I've heard interviews with her and she she says that I mean she grew up with like all of the songs that like we we heard like growing up like the cumbias and like mm-hmm. all that type of stuff but she also was like obsessed with Bjork <laughs> <laughs> and she's like can I just be Bjork as well yeah. and like be the like be a version of myself that's like Bjork too so I find it great that she is into like kind of like electronic but also pop like she DJs she does raves and like her mom I think as not I don't know if now she still does but her mom was a domestic worker Mm -hmm. and I know that up until recently she still is a domestic worker so like I, I knew that I don't know if like to this day like present now she's still doing that but yeah, like, she would clean houses, like, her mom. And she would, like, go and help her. Yeah, <laughs> Which I, I used feel, to do that. That's what yeah, my mom... Yeah, same. Yeah, my mom used to do that when she got here. And, like, when we were growing up also, like, we would go. Right? Yeah. So I just think there's, like, I didn't even know that. And I'm like, I like her even more. Yeah, <laughs> no, cool. I love her. And lo- the I love the aesthetic. And there's definitely a lot of femininity and, and non-femininity. Yeah. And, like, the other women in the video... And the one man that's in the video is fine as fuck. (laughs) 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 And it's good. I I love, I really like her a lot. And I've been really excited for her new project. Mm -hmm. And it's coming out really soon. Like her new album. I'm excited. Yes. Okay. So transitioning. Can we talk about what we're actually here to talk about? Can you introduce the topic? Okay. Yeah. So we are going to be unpacking as much as we can offline community organizing i think that you know we both have platforms on the internet to some degree but the majority of our like work work uh is offline um and things that we don't necessarily put online for various reasons and just really like as organizers um in our own respective ways like how we can just like have a conversation about it have dialogue about what community organizing experiences we've had and kind of the systems that play into it and even how the internet plays a part in offline community organizing to some degree yeah because there's a lot of conversations that i've seen where people dismiss others as being like internet activists or like twitter activists and I guess I think a lot about there are a lot of discussions is like if you're mocking people on Twitter or on the internet like you're ableist you're elitist classist etc and and I definitely agree to an extent because mm-hmm. there are definitely people who don't have the time to yeah. be able to like and that's the topic we, we talk about yeah or we will talk about yeah 
And there's definitely people who just can't. Like, they physically cannot be at a rally for, like, four hours. Yeah. Or they aren't comfortable going into, like, certain spaces. Or they have children and there's not proper daycare. Like, organizing is not... I think just to kind of, like, roll right in, it's that, like, organizing in itself is a privilege. Mm -hmm. Because, um, and also if you're young, if you're bodily abled, and it's just you, they're, like, your opportunities of organizing are are so different than people who don't. Um, Like, I'm 23, I'm able, and I don't have kids. (laughs) Not yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, I I have uh, colleagues who, like, have children, have three children, and then, like, I'm in San Francisco too, so organizing here is very different, I, I would say, and than other places because every different city, every different place has like different issues facing it. And here, our biggest one is affordability. And we don't have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there I was reading a uh, an article where they did a study and there are more dogs than children in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. They're, they We cater more to dogs, you know, and having dog parks and having accessible daycare to people. Uh, in San Francisco, like that's fucking wild. So like, uh, oh sorry, am I not? Allowed no, to? you're, you're okay, more than allowed to curse. <laughs> so it's encouraging. You know that is just to um, jump right off is is a privilege in its own way. Not to glorify that privilege, to ju- but to just be like check yourself. You know. Yeah. So yeah. I think we like talking about community activism and the importance of it. So yeah, it's like making sure that you take advantage of that privilege. If if you are someone that is like an advocate for something, yeah, like. Make sure that you go outside of the internet and like do that if you have the capabilities of doing it. Yeah, for I think sure. the the number one thing that I learned really quickly, and I think even before that, it was my parents who like really. My parents will never say they were organizers, but at heart, that's what they've been, and that's how they, uh, they've, they've raised my sisters and I to think community oriented. Because like, especially when my parents got uh, divorced, the only way that my mom was able to make sure that we had a future was through taking advantage of all the community resources that were available um it was all word of mouth and i think that our community forgets that like you don't have to have like the organizer official like nonprofit, whatever it is title to be like word of mouth is like the best propaganda in our communities and from learning about free health clinics to learning about free after school programs and like all these other things is a form of organizing mm-hmm. and i think that like you know i strongly believe everyone is an organizer in their own way to some degree obviously but it's like it's just so important to get off the internet and i think that in the age in an age where you can't get rid of it like it's here we got the reality is we have to take like deal with it um you know a lot of different organizers organizing groups are using it as a tool but i think that what i've seen and what is one of like my frustrations it's that like people see it as the platform to do organizing or to do activism and for me it's like the revolution is not going to be and people have said it before it's not going to be it's not going to be televised it's not going to be on a medium that to some degree is still inaccessible to folks you know what i mean like the internet might be free in some spaces but even then it's not you know it's like having even the access for like a device and a lot of folks you know in my community who aren't in don't have forms of privilege like go to cafes and like get the free internet there but even there it's like limited right so the internet in itself is not the most accessible place to be organizing and i think that another element of like internet activism twitter activism whatever you want to call it is the performative element of it and for me like activism is not it's not something 
there's the cool factor, right, in today's world where um, saying that you support different movements, there you go, gives you, like, checks you off as a progressive person. If I've learned anything, it's, like, especially being in San Francisco, that is, like, a city that's deemed as, like, one of the most progressive places in the world, (laughs) is that it's not. It's still incredibly classist. It's incredibly racist. It's incredibly, incredibly xenophobic, even if it has a sanctuary city ordinance, you know, that people always, like, you know, tout around. It's, like, we we still have all these isms that are that are painful to our communities and no yeah the performative element of, of it to me is really frustrating because like it is do or die for a lot of people like to say you're for tenant rights but not show up for your community or for your neighborhood and then like you know when one person is evicted and like folks i feel like are then like oh no then there'll be another case we can just like you know shout out on like our page it's like yeah but for that family they're permanently housed like unhoused for now and it's like it's not it's not a joke and i not to say that people perform of it like are performatively like activists jokingly but i just think that i don't think people understand like the severity of it because now we're normalizing the performative activism and i think that the more you normalize it the more damaging it is to real community organizing not to say that like using the internet as a tool isn't real work but um even like with my illustrations right like i'll use that i'll use myself as an example like I can put on, I've been doing a lot of stuff with Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. I understand that, like, you know, highlighting Nicaraguan organizers or people on the ground in Nicaragua, that's not to say that that's it. Like, that's, you can't stop there. And personally, like, I have the privilege of being able to organize transnationally with a group here in San Francisco where we're doing a lot of humanitarian aid in Nicaragua and helping students and organizers who are the revolution over there, who are the folks, like, who are the real organizers. We here are just, like, a, a tool for them you know mm-hmm. and that goes into i know i'm like jumping ahead, no, but like, no, no. that goes into like the co-opting of of those things so but like going back to the illustration element it's like you know there it, there are a lot of platforms that they're like people see them as internet activists because they're like they're body posy or they're um they're all for poc communities they're for xyz thing and like that's a great start and it makes you feel comfortable and it makes you feel like liking that picture or even creating that image or consuming it makes you a good person but that's not enough like for me it's not i know that like again like i i'm very aware of my privileges that make this work accessible and make it a choice and for some other people it's not a choice you know it's like it's literally it's do or die do or die and for me it's like i it's it's it's, it is a privilege um i know i've been using that word a lot but i just can't emphasize uh that a lot of folks in these spaces also choose to ignore that and we there's a constant pitting of like oppressive narratives it's like oh well my my story is more like is more oppressive or sadder than yours and this and that and i also have made a choice to just shut down any opportunity to bring in my own personal narrative when I feel like it's gonna just be pitted or wielded against me and it's just like in spaces where it's like I'm not here to tell you that you're a better organizer or that I am or that your story is sadder than mine like I'm here to do the work locally but um there's just a lot but yes I'm like literally having a brain fart no 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 (laughs) what's the next part something something that I like I'm reminded of when you were talking about just like internet activism or mm-hmm. Twitter activism. Uh, I guess a, a real life version of it that I think is a good example of performative activism, performative wokeness is that I saw a tweet saying uh, white people will have a Black Lives Matter sign on their window oh my in, a fa- God. in a house that was used to be black owned that was evicted before if they If that is in. not the Bay Area, I swear. Like, I swear I don't, though. That is, that is the Bay Area basically. Bay Area, the idea of Bay Area progressives 
in a tweet. I saw that too. And I, was like, mm-hmm. oh my God. I was like, retreat immediately because this shit is like real. Yeah. It's wild. I'm from San Francisco's Mission District, which is historically Latino. Before that, it was historically Italian when people migrated over. It's, it's an immigrant part of the district. Uh, or of the city district of the city and it's wild because you know you have all these folks coming out to our uh to the things we organize being like yeah we stand in solidarity with you guys we're against family separation tp yeah tps being rescinded is terrible but it's like yes but you are gentrifying this neighborhood you don't contribute to the local economy you don't help local merchants or like you don't support local merchants like it's just it's very hypocritical and i think it's like one of those feel-good things right yeah it's like i live in san francisco so saying and showing up to this one thing makes me feel good and And i'm taking a picture of myself while i'm here yes saying i support immigrants and i think that for me it's like in the age of the internet is really frustrating like you know i organize different events i go to all these different things and i don't i've noticed like a lot of folks show up to take a picture literally and then like bounce and it's like okay but we're here to like there's a level of education that we're trying to provide that is accessible in a language that is accessible and i think that's also another thing i can talk about later it's just like how inaccessible language is sometimes used in spaces that are supposed to be accessible but because of like elitism and education and other stuff like it's a problem but yeah that is the best way to summarize my experience here in the bay area like that's that's crazy and it's a sad truth but it's yeah and i think that with with especially with like family separation and like hegemonizing or like co-opting movements uh, certain communities, not only like white folks, like or white communities, we're not we're, immune. We're yeah. not immune. Like we are, we can do it as well. Like for TPS, like Sudanese immigrants, Haitian immigrants, were also taken off of TPS, but yeah. it supposedly became only a Central American issue. Even, we are the poster yeah. child. And even then, like I think you narrow it down when I think now in like mainstream like organizing spaces or like you know platforms or even just mainstream like America, when you think about TPS, I know that the narrative has been around Salvadorian holders and uh you know i have a salvadorian aunt who's being affected by this but it's really interesting that like so it is personal for me but i it it is a problem that when we bring in haitian sudanese or black immigrant voices it's really just to be like well we did our part we we gave them a platform to speak for like a second but it's like there has to be equity in these movements of narratives like there has to be equity in like how when and why you provide these folks platforms across all communities because this isn't a salvadorian issue Mm -hmm. this isn't a sudanese issue this is an immigrant issue and i think it's just the co-opting of that is an issue i think another example that you said the family separation there was a organized event here in the mission on 24th street and it was organized by this chicano or not chicano excuse me mexican man uh who i know in the neighborhood and before like two weeks prior to that there was i made a comment about like the dangers of nationalism right and then he like dms me (laughs) going into the internet you know dms me being like hurt as fuck being like you know um i've worked with central american migrants in mexico and like the just to summarize the whole thing it was like i am immune from being from erasing Central American voices because I've or like I've organized to talk to Central Americans. And then going on being like, you know, Chileans and Argentinians and all these other people have also suffered. It is not fair to say that the Central American region is one of the most tra- has has experienced all this trauma. And I'm sitting here on the other side of the screen being like, 
you got some nerve. Because mm-hmm. I am coming from a very specific narrative and you're basically telling me how to feel and you're erasing my whole experience. And not just that, but like the generational experience of my family. And like, I'm only coming from one perspective also. I'm not like, I'm also, I don't represent the indigenous or the Afro-Latino part of our region and like around the Americas. And then fast forwarding to the actual event, you know, he had the zine that he was putting out and he then DM'd me being like, hey, I hope you submit. And I'm just sitting here and he wanted a piece of one of my Nicaragua pieces. And I'm sitting here like, so one, you have the nerve to be like, your voice isn't like, I can't, I can't stand with what you have to say because I, I, it doesn't sit well with me. And then later be like, I would like this very specific Central American Nicaraguan piece to put in my, in my zine. And it's like, what? So that we can then show our community that you represent all of Central America, yeah, but behind the scenes, yeah. tokenizing. Mm-hmm. And behind the scenes, not actually doing that. And so I didn't, obviously. And then at the actual event, it's like, you did not have a single Central American person speak. Like, from what I was able, from when, the time that I was there, I did not see someone from the community that I knew was Central American speak. And then, you know, I had other criticisms being like, well, why didn't you do it, Gabby? And it's like, because I cannot take on, I do not have the bandwidth. And that's another thing we can talk about. Bandwidth. To go up and, like, go to every single event and represent all of Central America, I am just a, por- a piece of it here locally. I'm not all of it. I don't think it's fair. I think there has to be equity in how we share that space and bringing in different voices. And at the end of the day, like, it's not my job. To do that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, it's exhausting. It it's is really exhausting. exhausting. And then you're, I mean, even bringing you on, it's like, no offense or, or whatever to you, but yeah. it's like you aren't. It's not that you're not being affected by family separation, but it's like, are are you even uh, like? No. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you're trying to ask. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's so like, for us, you... it's personal in my family because we had before the before all this that happened this year, um, I had a cousin who was in detention center in in Texas Mm -hmm. for eight months before we saw him. Mm -hmm. And so him, we, my mom sponsored him and like technically adopted him um, until he turned 18 uh, this past year. And he has experienced so much trauma, like so much trauma in El Salvador. And then for him to come here, like we met, he he spent Thanksgiving and Christmas in a detention center. And that was the first time I learned about yeleras, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, you learned about blankets, the, like... The emergency. Fo- the emergency blankets. Yeah. You know, eight months with that. Eight months of being, like, malnutrition, basically. Eight months of seeing abuse. Like, for me, family separation is, like... I. It's not my experience, but I just know what it did to my family. And I yeah. know what it did to my mother. Like, that's, that's her nephew. It's not her son, but when you have such a small community, it's still family. Yeah. And so then, fast forward a year later we're talking about family separation it's just like for for my mom it was really triggering and to see that is painful you know it's your mother like it hurts but to then also just see all the other narratives just be erased and Mm -hmm. to be taken on like at least in the spaces i've been the dialogue around family separation has been at the hands of like chicanos or mexican community members and like i see that like they're trying to advocate for like quote like the latino community but what people feel like to really look at facts is that like central americans are disproportionately being affected and to then not have that at all or the discussion as to why why as like, to why, why? yeah sorry like, going why into are that, central americans why are central americans being like you know and that's act that's affected. the activism as well it's like the why Where, the why the and why i think people forget missing. it's like and i think also in organizing there's a lot of like reactionary work and I think that having like looking at other communities like you also have to do a lot of proactive work because if if it's I believe in like sustainable community organizing and that that is possible it takes that takes a lot of a lot of work I think it takes a lot of um, personal efforts to educate yourself but yeah it's just frustrating especially here in the mission 
uh, sometimes seeing that. Sometimes it doesn't happen, but more times than not, it does. And then in San Francisco, the voice for Latinos and the face of Latinidad here is Chicano or is Mexican, and it gets exhausting. So, you know, family separation was personal, and it still is. Like, it, it never isn't at some point, but it's just, like, going home and, like, seeing my mom read the news. My mom was constantly, like, WhatsApping me different articles and being, like, like, look at this, like, look at this, and it's just so sad, and, like, or would send screenshots of, like, crying kids and, like, the audio, the mm-hmm. audio of these children, like, just broke us, like, all, because it's, like, you know, our, our cousin is, like, a lot older, um, and he's, like, what, 16, well, he's 18 now, but at the time he was, like, 16, 17, um, and he wasn't gonna cry in front of a family he doesn't know, like, we weren't his family, to some degree and it's just like also there's that trauma right yeah because it's like i mean you're helping me out which is probably cool i mean he's like grateful but at the end of the day it's like you're still strangers we're strangers and that was like so hard on my mom because it's just like but you're still a family and like she she's immigrated before Mm -hmm. she immigrated here so she um has explained to me she understands what it feels like to go to a place and know no one and then she was like i can't imagine going to a place not really knowing who I live with, but knowing that the only relationship we have is familial and like that's it. And there was just a lot that happened after that, but um, him coming to um, into our homes also like there was just a lot, you know, that 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 we had to deal with and like the legal element of it mm-hmm. all, right? Like eight months in a detention center is is a long time. Yeah, um, soul crushing. Yeah, it's a lot. So yeah, I mean, it is something to to really think about and. And then it goes back down to that local aspect because it's like now he's at a detention center. So what is that local community surrounding that detention center doing? Are they ignoring it? Are they supporting this detention center? Mm-hmm. I mean, because a lot of detention centers are extremely isolated. Yeah, they are. They're like super inaccessible. Fucking on purpose. Far, on like, purpose. Yeah. To, first of all, for people to be like, do they even exist? And mm-hmm. also because... They don't. They don't want people to be protesting it all the time. Mm-hmm. They don't. They want it to be hard for lawyers to get there, mm-hmm. and for any volunteer and any type of services to really get there as well. And a lot of these are privately run. Yeah. So it's like that. That is another element of. It. I mean, any type of like publicly run prison is also shit too. You know. Yeah. Thinking a lot about like, uh, I think I really wanted to invite you, Gabby, because you do very very localized organizing versus I don't know. I guess like I'm trying to think of just like general. Uh, community organizing which is like Black Lives Matter is something that is more of a nationwide topic but obviously it is very localized yeah it is very local too Yeah, uh, or I'm trying to think of like, you know there's just so many movements where it's like it can definitely take on like a national context like TPS that's like a federal national context yeah. but then there is definitely very very local community organizing mm-hmm. like who is getting voted into your school district uh, yeah. who is um just like who is gonna be your new mayor? Even, Are your like, streets yeah. fixed? Like organizing locally was kind of like not. It wasn't something I thought I would be doing. I think that in a lot of cases, I think I was like as a child. It was more of like you didn't know you were an organizer at like age fourteen, but you were like believing in something and having strong convictions in something, and like just even telling your classmates or like community around you and like being loud about it i think that's another thing that has really like allowed me to be comfortable in community in in doing community organizing is that you know my mom really fostered being like if you believe in something then do something about it it's not enough for you to just come home all the time and just talk about it like do something about it and like you know i would i ended up in different spaces that allowed me to like have the opportunity to even look at it as like something i like wanted to do for a little bit and i actually was a legislative intern at city hall uh i think like two and a half years ago 
a while ago. And it was my first time really understanding like what legislation does to communities. And I think, you know, how disproportionately affected black and brown uh, people in San Francisco are on just even like if you look at our local, excuse me, elected officials, um, what that says, what that means. Most recently, I've been able to like work on different campaigns and campaign work is crucial. Who works on campaigns is crucial. Platforms you're pushing are crucial. Messaging and like in a sense marketing your platforms and the campaign is crucial. And how you make that accessible to different communities is crucial. Like everything's crucial, right? But it's been very interesting because I have had like a lot of folks like, you know, there's commentary of like, how, like, why don't you focus on this thing or that thing? It's like, well, because for me in San Francisco, like Latinos are being pushed out at an incredibly, incredibly fast pace, uh, fast rate. And to, as well as black folks. And mm-hmm. black folks who um, represent less than, I think, they're at five now or less than three percent from what i know it's three percent and like 10 years ago they were like 10 percent of the city around there around there and it's just like and actually district 10 in san francisco um the bayview is historically black district it's also what some folks call the warehouse district where there were literally like warehouse there's also a really toxic what's it called shipyard it was a naval shipyard yeah that has like it's just there's a lot of like environmental economic and social racism in that district right and it is also the last place in all the places in san francisco to some degree all the districts um have been developed to some degree and the bayview is starting to get developed so it is the next place where uh, to be gentrified the mission is like it's already there but the baby is so this upcoming election in november is important like who who people vote in is important i'm not from that district so i don't necessarily like publicizing you know like who i think should take on because it's not and i think that's another thing about community organizing like knowing your place right that's not my district i do not identify as black i'm not black um (laughs) i don't understand and don't know the struggles of that respective community so like yeah i leave that to the community members of of that space to do that so I, I strongly believe that local organizing is important. I think our generation is getting there in terms of like understanding like why it's so crucial. The smallest things in life, in your like everyday life, are affected by local legislation, by local organizing. And I think the news does a great job of, you know, really emphasizing federal issues. Um, I get it. You know, I get why. But you have to, I think, like just even taking a mental note of like the things that are happening in your backyard are just if not more important because they will affect you directly they will affect your neighbors directly your community the children in your district and area directly and um, when we talk about our youth right it's like this is literally the next generation that um either will be positively affected or negatively affected so for me like school board elections are always important and in san francisco uh it from what i've been able to notice you know It's being used as a stepping stone. It's a part-time commissioner job. And I'm just sitting here like, San Francisco schools, you know, a lot of of people here go to private school. I went... um, I've I've noticed that a lot. I'm going to be real. Sorry. Like, just meeting people, a lot of people tell me, like, they went to private school. They went to this school. Mm -hmm. They went to that school. And then I'm like... I I hear so little about public schools in San Francisco versus... I live in Oakland. Mm -hmm. And in Oakland, uh, I I know a lot of people that work at OUSD and stuff. So I hear so much about, like, public schools Mm -hmm. in Oakland. And, yeah, for San Francisco, I feel like... I mean, you have literally no kids left. Yeah. And And teachers can't afford to live here. I'm going to be hella real. Like, I went to a charter school from K to 8. And then I got a scholarship and went to a private school across town um, for high school. 
and you know and then i went i like went to a private college and now i'm back so like my education has been privatized or is a private was a privatized experience quote unquote you know and i strongly believe in public education and i think that even though i haven't been i wasn't didn't have the avenue to public education doesn't mean like I don't believe in it and I think that for folks when uh, people realize that I do a lot of like education advocacy they're like their first thing is like but you didn't go to public school Da-da-da-da. like this and this and that and I'm sitting here like that's another thing right but for me it's like well think about why like you always have to think about the why charter schools are notorious for um, going after scamming, after, <laughs> scamming and going <laughs> after vulnerable communities yeah. like our immigrant communities uh, like they know that part of the immigrant like narrative in our households is like education first in a lot of them at least college is a priority and you know if you tell a parent like if there's some level of like we're conditioned to believe that because it's made a little more inaccessible that it's better so i got into the charter school my sisters because we got lottery i got i won the lottery it's literally what they call it i got a lottery ticket that let me go in that meant that my two younger sisters when they were ready to go to school could also go to the school and because it was like it was all by chance of sorts my parents were convinced that it was better and like it's not their fault to some degree you know like they they wanted the best for their children and then when it was right time for me to go to college or high school excuse me we at the time a lot of the public schools were notoriously terrible and a lot of the there was a lot of gang violence and a lot go to of mission high I did not go to mission high <laughs> mission high is a beautiful school it's in terms beautiful. of architecture no it's a beautiful school and like they actually have really great teachers and they have um really great like programming specifically for their children or for the kids there and it is getting better but um, that is not a school my mom wanted me to go to and my parents didn't want me to go to. And at the same time, when I was at my charter school, there was a program that came in that was, they were going to all the schools in the city, private, public, charter, they didn't care, they went to all of them. And um, it was called Summer Bridge and they provided like prep basically for the next year so i applied and i remember they gave us a pitch what we were like in the fourth or fifth grade and they're pitching basically to children to be like hey apply if you want to so it's literally on the child to decide and i remember them like all i heard was she was like we will help you get into college like basically and i was like whoa and um, (laughs) as a kid you're like i need to go and i was like i was like that's all my parents emphasized was like that is important i was like okay and then I went, and it was great. Um, their programming was great. And they had a summer uh, program, but they also had a year-round like tutoring and like all this other stuff. It was great. And then I didn't know that the school that the um, summer program, you know, was based out of, is one of the most like prestigious in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I didn't know that. To me, my concept of school was either public or Catholic school because in my family, <laughs> in their countries, the two options are Catholic, private. Or public and so when I learned about independent high schools I was like holy shit the game has changed and then I applied and I was like well it's really up to the school if I get in or not because even if they give me partial financial aid I'm not gonna go I have to get a full ride to go so it was a shocker when I got a full ride and I tested in and I was like oh fuck and so then now fast forward to the work that I'm doing now a, a child and their family should not have to go through that many hurdles to get a basic education that is fundamentally like like everyone is entitled to it yeah and especially being in that private high school i saw that like the the they even had a a fund for under-resourced kids that like if you needed new cleats but your family couldn't afford it they would pay it off if you could only give a dollar towards like your what 85 dollar cleats and they'll accept it because they had a what is it called not a trust 
but they had an endowment. An endowment. There you go. That's some, uh, that's some rich people words. Right no, there. yeah, they had an a, endowment. There was a there was a, there was an endowment, and it's just like that's crazy. Like all my textbooks were paid for. All these other things were paid for. Things that like I at the time didn't. I knew that that was a privilege, but at the same time, I was just like literally trying to survive. But you're 15 years old. You're the, like one of the few brown kids in the school. Yeah. And the idea of accessibility, you under, you know that you're not supposed to be there. You know that the system is set up so that you are not supposed to be there. And just wanting, like, just surviving each day and being like, just get through today in itself was like a whole other layer we couldn't pack so later. Funny. But going back to the, to the core of this is the fact that an education like that, like the one that I got that was very, that was very like individual and like very, uh, it was great. It was like, it was amazing. But it should not take, at the time, I think tuition was like $36,000 a year. For a fucking high school. For one year, yeah. For a fucking high school. That's college. That's university. That's a co- That's a state, like, that's that's like a... State tuition. A state tuition. $36,000. And not including books, not including ter- transportation, not including equipment, not including, like, food. I also had all my food paid for, you know, like, all these things, like... In San Francisco public schools, you have kids dealing with um, food deserts in their neighborhoods, food scarcity just in their households, inaccessibility to like a lot of our a lot of laundromats in San Francisco are disappearing. Um, the one that was at where I where I grew up, uh, the one by my house, is now a body rock, like one of those fucking so gyms. Stupid. And it's like people don't understand like organizing around even like accessible access to clean clothes is a real issue. Like, it's a community issue. And it's, like, if kids, especially kids who, like, depending what they're... If they have uniform or if they don't, like, clean clothes is also essential in a child's like education right yeah because then you're gonna have some shit kids like making yeah. fun of them and being and like, like you're the poor brown kid in the and class. even if you don't feel like even if no one teases you you yourself as a child like how do you, you feel, feel yeah um food is another issue like even though sfusd like provides like uh does provide like free lunch to some kids like kids are not eating it's because trash. it's disgusting it's and it's like so now you have hungry kids they're stressed out because of various elements that could be going on in their personal lives and they're hungry so they're not concentrating and studies show that you need to be like well fed well like sleeping well and um that like all these other social layers like elements that contribute to a child's experience in education Mm -hmm. and um and right now in oakland i just read the news today for oakland budget cuts they're cutting free food yeah that is an oakland budget cut is free food and it just goes to show like because there are so many private schools and charter schools popping up. Both charter schools. Are, Sorry, I'm like. No, I'm very anti. I'm very school. anti-charter school because I mean, there's, I can I can talk so much about. Sorry, no, this is like so much. Local. This has turned into like a very like education like a, a segment. Local, well, because like in California, for people who aren't from California, but in California, a big reason why schools are shit is because of a law concerning property taxes that yeah. passed in i think 88 or 87 and it was basically they uh, people got a cap in their property taxes mm-hmm. if they were a homeowner and they voted that law in and when jerry brown was governor during that time he was like if you vote this law in two-thirds of california public school education is going to be slashed and literally overnight two-thirds were slashed so we were like i don't know what number in the united states and then we became the lowest uh like 50th in the united states on like per student spending well i think that's why like i think we have to also consider like public education is inherently racist oh yeah with that especially because the way to generational wealth in America is through home ownership. And homeowners have um, 
the demographic that has had more access in history have been white people and like yeah i was like i just realized like will your audience like be okay with i don't give a fuck sorry <laughs> like, I, this is a show of all about tangents and no, this I is know. all about community organizing and this is us engaging no, yeah but i, with I just think like community I'm, organizing i'm very careful with the way like i talk about white, white privilege a lot i talk about we talk about it all the time yeah. no i know you do you guys do but it's just like <laughs> when it comes to education people are very like uh, they like tense up when they mm-hmm. hear like white privilege institutional racism home ownership like how is it all connected and it's like well you have to look at legislation that passed right yeah. and it's like things that happen locally then affect things that happen on a state level state level things also affect federal yes. issues you know it, it is all a, a system unfortunately that is intertwined and, and works together so i think like yeah our, our school system is suffering a lot i think that's why you know you can't you can't rely on your uh, school board candidates to do everything. Like, look at San Francisco, right? It's a part-time job, meaning commissioners also have to have another part-time job to survive. And it's like, I would, like, my dream would be that in San Francisco, one of the first steps towards good public school education is make school board a full-time position. You know, make it, the, the commissioner spot, full-time. And it, this is the richest city one of the richest cities in the world, in the United States, and you're telling me you don't have money to give a commissioner like a full-time position to focus on our public schools if we had more kids going through the public school system taking advantage of the opportunities that they would be able to provide then you would also have like people like going to college having access to college coming back if they decide to contributing to the local economies like you know being active citizens that can participate in all these different systems i know that like even if you're undocumented you haven't had an education you can still be an active citizen Mm -hmm. but there are different like barriers to that in different spaces right so for me it's like it starts in in the beginning and i think people also negate talking about early childhood education like people like i've I've seen a lot of this and i think like i i see that it's like um like you know i'm also not like the the queen of community organizing i'm like and i'm not the i don't know everything i'm always learning but um and and that's why i like feel some type of way sometimes about criticizing things but from my experience right we focus a lot on like college preparation and that is very important but you could also have to remember that sometimes doing like college preparation it's too late it's never really too late but it is to some degree too late in some situations because where there should have been focus is in their formative elementary school years if if a child um through third to fifth grade isn't like doesn't have an education that is fostered in a healthy way then they're going to struggle through elementary they're going to struggle through high school and studies have shown this and when they get to college it can drop out rates like you know score or like skyrocket like and that can affect unemployment and all these other things and even before that access to kindergarten preschool all these different things like affect everything and um to kind of reel in like why education is so crucial to community organizing Mm -hmm. is that a lot of organizers locally like we have experience in college we have experience in different institutions i have been able to understand different institutional racism because of my experience in 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 private spaces right in spaces that are not meant to be accessible to people like us who are not supposed to be accessible to the children of immigrants and it's like I learned how to code switch. I learned how to literally present myself in a way that is comfortable to white people to get something done for my brown community. And like, yeah, I fucking suck sometimes to like basically perform your whiteness. But like, that is also a problem because whiteness in these spaces is considered like 
can be anything from speaking in a way that is quote unquote educated that is like presenting yourself quote unquote in a way that isn't their stereotype of a brown person and like presenting yourself as someone who is competent which is like to me one of the most painful things it's like my mother doesn't have a college education but she is one of the most competent intelligent human beings i know and has a third grade education and runs her own business and is doing well in san francisco like but in white spaces she would be dismissed immediately like you know she still to this day gets confused for a caterer because she doesn't present herself in a way that is comfortable for white people and unfortunately like in some community organizing spaces, yeah, it's like all brown, all POC, but also those who have power to make to do to do the changes we need for our neighborhoods, for our communities, are not do not reflect the community we're advocating for. Oh hell yeah! And it also it just thinks so. I feel like this could easily go into like nonprofit and like oh nonprofit gosh, industrial yes. complex and like organizing in neighborhoods that are being an organizer in a neighborhood that is or a community that is just like not yours. Yeah. And or being a part of like a nationally recognized nonprofit or even just like a local grassroots nonprofit mm-hmm. and the amount of money mismanagement which could end up going to the actual community, but is like. But due to really, really poor leadership, due to lying, like fraud and like all that type of stuff between these nonprofits, it doesn't go out to the community that it actually needs. And there's just so many issues. And like I have like literally gotten I have gotten so many great resources from nonprofits without a lot of nonprofit resources and like me volunteering at a nonprofit. And I've literally been to too many nonprofits. Mm -hmm. It's it's some of them are really great but then it's also you once you start working in it and in that world it just feels like everything's permanently mismanaged yeah and it's so fragile like sometimes it's amazing and great and then sometimes you just see it and like maybe your programming staff is great and all these things are awesome but it's the management that fucking sucks yeah so then that's why there's high turnover that's why there's a lack of benefits that's why they're constantly losing money mm-hmm. because of a lot of these people aren't from the community. Like I work at an office that does um, basically home ownership uh, opportunities in San Francisco, and I, in my year of being there, I've seen over twelve people leave, mm-hmm. and like that's wild. And is it why is that? Because I mean, I can I can definitely point some fingers as to like why that has yeah. happened, but ultimately. If I can point the finger, that means that management hasn't taken care of it, yeah. right? So even if it maybe it wasn't management's fault per se, at the end of the day, it is because they're management. Well, it's also, that's like who bottom lines a lot. Right? Things, right? Is the bottom line. And like, I, I used to be, so like within nonprofits, there's also different roles, right? I was an independent contractor. Um, I like doing independent contracting work. Um, and I was working on in uh, one of their, one of a local nonprofits um, art programming. And speaking about, like, you know, inequity is such a thing. Like, even though you are a contractor and don't, like, have staff benefits, X, Y, Z things, you know, I found out at some point that I was being paid $4 less than the person who had my job and before. And before I got the, the job that I took on for a while, um, I was hired as this the former person's, like, assistant kind of. Not assistant, but, like, I was supposed to be the co-coordinator. Ended up becoming this person's assistant to some degree. They wouldn't show up to work they weren't their output was terrible i was doing 90 percent of their work so that the project wouldn't suffer yet like you know getting paid like crap at the time and then i get this other job i get like what a dollar 
I don't even think it was a dollar raise. No, I got like the same thing, uh, paid the same time. And then because I'm all about like, you need to know the projects you're working about. I wanted to know how much of our budget we had. I wanted to like, I did all the homework. And then I'm reading in like the fine print that like, you know, the ground outline that the person gets paid X number. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? So I wrote this letter to the board of directors being like, hey, I think that this is why I should get the job, my raise or not even raise. This is what I think I should get paid X, Y, Z. Then I'm pulled to HR and HR is like, actually, you know, they, they explained to, or they tried to explain to me like what grants are. And I was like, I know what a grant is. And they're like, you know, grants, it's kind of like, it's like when you put in, um, travel expenses, but you don't actually use it. Like it's uh, to the discretion of the org. And I was sitting here like, I'm not here to talk about discretion. I'm here to talk about like pay equity, right. And like the output and all this other stuff. And fast forward, I'm one of two contractors that resigned and then no two staffers that resigned and two contractors i like don't remember everyone else's roles but i just know we were all women and it's like in nonprofits, like we had there not we in these spaces it's all about progressive values in a lot of a lot of times right but we all resigned because of this extreme toxic masculinity that was presented to the board and if we're talking about leadership and management you know they're there were rumors that he would be like asked to leave and then what do you know he's still there today (laughs) and you know the community from what i can like what i've been able to gauge community engagement in the project i was working on has plummeted their marketing has plummeted the and having read and like understood the requirements of the grant the money is not going to the community that should be and so it's like it starts at leadership to Mm -hmm. like how things are either delegated treated and it it like you know people who are not living in the community who might identify as brown but don't understand the like immediate issues of our community are now like working on this project like i'm using a very specific example to kind of like yeah unpack as much as i can and it's just like they exploited a narrative of our community in my opinion to get funding and then the funding doesn't get funneled into the community the way it should be and like you said once you're in it you really see like it's kind of bleak and it feels like we're all fighting each other yeah. in some type of way. And I'm like, why Why is this happening? Like, I thought at the end of the day, we were here to help people. Yeah, and I, all these people yeah. feel... Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. Yeah, and all these people feel like they're all good people mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, they're like getting paid to serve the community. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait, but you're like funneling money in like very shady ways. And this, there's some genuinely great people I work with, people who are amazing at their jobs they're getting underpaid they're being stretched thin and be and sometimes it's like i feel like so many of my coworkers, at least right now have been degraded and constantly being questioned of like their value mm-hmm. and not getting the support they need the benefits that they need and this is also majority women majority yeah. women a lot of queer women are in this space so it's like no these are people who should be very like very much so like, down right yeah but and like and if you talk about the politics they're down but then i'm like okay but where is this like pay like why are you being so not transparent with like how you're running this like this organization and this is why your turnover rate is insane like yeah. it's not this is like not normal well i think like going, is it? going into it's like then the industrial complex the industrial of this of is like comes down to pay it comes down to like the coin they have yeah. available to either pay employees funnel and like provide community resources and like 
it's not to say that every nonprofit sucks because I currently now work for another nonprofit um, who is super, super grassroots. I'm actually doing like a lot of their communications and like consulting work for them. And it's been great. They also do transnational work. So for them, like the nonprofit element is just more of like, this is paperwork we need to do um, versus being like, this is our identity. And I think that it's like, there are a lot of organizations where like being a nonprofit is their whole identity when it like, it, I find that a little bit uh, concerning because it's like your your status, <laughs> you know, um, as an organization should not matter as much as like the work and the resources you provide our community. But having said everything that I did, it's like I understand that there and I've actually been like at the receiving end of some of the great work of that course. nonprofits have been able to do some of like not all nonprofits are the same, obviously, but um, there are. In a lot of ways, my mom wouldn't be where she is today and I wouldn't be where I am today without the organizers or the um, coordinators or the executive directors at different nonprofits who were like, we're going to do the work no matter how hard it is, no matter how time consuming it is. I also think that you touched upon the exploitative nature of nonprofits. I think that like the idea of goodness, right? And the idea of how nonprofits, it's like, we're good people because we work in these places. Therefore, we're immune of like XYZ thing. Like I've been in so many spaces where just because it's a brown nonprofit, like homophobia is definitely just disregarded. Oh yeah, when um, people in different spaces find out I'm queer, there's an element of surprise because I'm their comfortable version of a queer person. But if they saw someone who was what they would consider visibly queer, they're very careful with how they, uh, their narrative, they're very careful with how they navigate these spaces. And if like, when I say, like I've been in spaces where some homophobic shit will come up and I'm like, that's not fucking okay. And like, that's also why our queer kids aren't coming out and don't feel safe in even these spaces. And the way like, language is important in these spaces intention is important and i think sometimes they're not they're not there and it hurts our community more than it helps i say this also wanting to clarify like being a community organizer does not mean being attached to a nonprofit. yeah yeah there's a lot of not (laughs) there's there are a lot of community organizers who do organizing outside of an institution outside of groups um people do it as individually as like little coalitions and it's amazing i think that's my favorite actually um and it's the one where i think there's a lot creativity attached to how they organize because in nonprofits there's more of like a like a structure that you have to adhere yeah. to but that also being said in like the more grassrootsy ones there's sometimes not all the time but sometimes less structure as to how things get streamlined and done but that's the one that I've really like been able to foster a lot of myself. So, and like yeah. the work I do with, with, I mean, the idea of a nonprofit is that you're able to do this full time. Yeah, you're able to with yeah. grassroots. That's definitely something that is not usually an option. Is yeah. that you're able to do full time? You're able to get insurance. You're able to get benefits. So it's like you're constantly doing. You're working your fucking nine to five. And then you have to bend your back to do this other work for nonprofit yeah. for for a grassroots organization, for a, a small collective, yeah. For which is a lot, it's a lot of free labor. It is a lot but, of free labor, yeah. and that's something that the nonprofit world and just like community organizing world in general is like profiting off of free labor or just like underpaid labor. Underpaid, yeah. Super underpaid labor, and I think of and I think just because like there's so many women in this field, it's like. A lot of women are already being like underpaid regardless and then working in nonprofits, you're generally underpaid yeah. for the role that you're doing regardless because it's a nonprofit. And then But women... I'll bet you, I'll bet you if non if the nonprofit sector were predominantly men, 
um, pay equity would not be an issue. Oh, hell no. Yeah, hell it wouldn't. No. So it, it's, there's just so many issues with like, I mean, there's so many great things about making sure you organize like offline, <laughs> but there's definitely so many like things that are really difficult. And I guess like what I want to like start closing out on with, offline community organizing Mm -hmm. i just want to like ask a a couple of questions that i have for you gabby like what would you think is good advice to like what's let's say like someone is listening to this and they're like well i don't even know where to go like i don't even know where to start uh or there's nothing around me like i live in the fucking butt fuck nowhere like (laughs) where am i gonna like start so Mm -hmm. i don't know what what are your what are your suggestions well i think like I emphasize like start local like I know there's just like a lot of the popular movements that have a lot more social capital with people are like the bigger ones the ones that like are at the national level those are also important it's not to say they're not but the best way to get involved and really like see what your bandwidth is to be able to contribute is start local like for me I'm I also acknowledge that there's a privilege that the mission has a long history of doing a lot of community organizing like starting is just literally asking your neighbor like where do I go I think that for example, if housing is an issue in your neighborhood, there are usually a lot of like tenant organizations that are happening. City Hall, I know it sounds like crazy, but like if you go to City like a lot of City Halls have connections to local organizations and they also know a lot of the organizers. And like I know that places like City Hall are like institutionally not welcoming to our people are intimidating so if you are comfortable going to i would say like do that um i literally started uh when i got back from school was like googling like i was like i care about immigrant issues let me google like nonprofits in um san francisco because i wanted to like see if there's anything outside of the mission googled it found a few places read their websites went to visit and like talk to a few folks then i started volunteering like one Sunday at one place, one Sunday at another, and be like, okay, which one feels like a space that I can, like, inhabit? If there's nothing around you, then that is a place where I would say, like, the internet (laughs) is a great place to, like, engage um, a little bit. Because I know that engagement is is also a part of it, right? Like, you need people to... You engage it. Like, it's kind of hard, actually. I can't say that I know what it's like for someone who's where there's nothing, but I, I feel like that's also not true like there is something everywhere there's always an issue there's always an issue whether it's like a transportation issue an infrastructure issue with like your roads if it's education also i think there's always 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 like if there's a school where you live there is always going to be an avenue for where you can help like keeping in mind yeah like there's some very privileged schools but even in those privileged schools that are like there are small demographics that do need support so i think that like I'm a really strong believer that there that there yeah. is yeah. stuff to do. I think investing in education is like a very very good easy start. Public education, yeah, public education. I know that in like really conservative states like West Virginia, I think Oklahoma. I know that West Virginia had like a statewide like teacher strike, and I know yeah. that there are multiple states yeah. who are like red states that are having very similar strikes. Which is like, okay, like, I don't know if anyone is in West Virginia listening, mm-hmm. but it's just even making sure like joining that because. There are so many black folks and like brown folks in really conservative areas. And it's like, where do they, what is it? School to prison pipeline. Like that is the first place that children are criminalized. It's like making sure that your education system, your public education system is equipped with like proper ESL classes or equipped with proper food and making sure that you like even think about like uh, your surroundings and like, how is your city segregated? Yeah. 
Like, what, what type of water do you have? And, like, I have... My mom's house is, like, full of lead contamination because mm-hmm. of a, the, one of the biggest toxic uh, contamination sites in the United States. And so it's, like, thinking about that and, like, environmental justice. So I come from a community where community organizing is definitely not strongly rooted in the city. And if anything, is barely, barely starting up now in, in a very visible way, like, with, through social media. Mm-hmm. And seeing that spring up and there was always organizing there's always people protesting and i don't know I, I we didn't talk about this but this is something that i'm very interested in well you mentioned it before sorry uh-huh. is that your family was very supportive of you my family was extremely unsupportive of me uh-huh. doing anything that's like community organizing or community uh-huh. oriented because i don't know if you remember this we were both pretty young during a may 1st march so my start in community organizing started uh, through immigration rights and through uh, a really famous like LA uh, immigration nonprofit. Oh, wait, but are you talking about the march? The march where like they beat protesters in downtown LA. That was that was like years ago. We were little, right? We were little. I forgot what year that was, but we in San Francisco were marching. That was my first time going to a march, and that was my first time knowing that my mom even like like was political. Even yeah, even if she didn't like engage in it, but it's like it's it sounds wild, but like that was the first time I realized like that my mom was an immigrant. Like I knew she was an immigrant because she like came to the country and all this other stuff. But to see her around other people, I was like, oh, this is a politicized issue. Like migration is not a human right. That is not seen as like, yeah. I'll take back what I said. I knew she was an immigrant, but like being in that space, I I got to understand like why we had to be present and like what that meant. But that's interesting because because of that event, my parents were like, no, why would you do this? Yeah. Like you're gonna get beat. Like you know? And so it's just like that that sort of criminalization of Mm -hmm. like free speech and that fear. I I think I think it's like what's happening now in Central America where it's like people are definitely scared to protest. Like people don't want to die. And it's like obviously that's to a lesser extent in the United States. But we don't we really don't know like my mom doesn't want me to get like beat with a cane in the face or get pepper sprayed yeah. or whatever. So it, it's just, or even get hurt by like remember in in Charlottesville where it's like yeah. that woman got murdered. Yeah, no, my mom. I'm telling you, my mom was all over that. She was sending me that everywhere. Like my parents have been supportive, but I've also like it had a lot of like proving to them that this is like something I could do for now. Like education is important. Like uh, in our family, and like I plan on going to law school at some point in the future. Um, but for now, this is kind of like where I want to be, and I can intentionally be present and i think that you know especially like we've talked about education it's always looked at as like this linear experience um and for me it's like you know i know that right now is a good time in my life to be able to organize what i what i am passionate about and that is a privilege again and then going back to to finish my education but also like it took me writing for the local newspaper for my parents to be like to literally read my opinions that's funny (laughs) and be like Okay. And the beauty is is that it's a bilingual newspaper. Mm-hmm. So I was able to write it in the way that I could communicate and um, translate it myself, had the copy editor, like, you know, do it, uh, help me. And had it all just like there. This is like, these are the things I care about. And so I would slowly, like, basically write about things that I was organizing around. And, like, then it allowed for dialogue with my family. So there's a lot more, like, background work to do because, like, my dad was like, why? Like, he knows that, like, people in these in these spaces do not get paid well and like so the first thing he made me do was like you need to learn how to negotiate a contract you need to know like he got on it you know like he was reluctantly supportive my mom is like now seeing especially how the neighborhood is changing and seeing that i am like stable and can provide for myself is like okay that's fine but like we've all basically had to um 
what's it called negotiate that i'll do this for xyz time interesting and then go back to do the things that like are necessary to do even though like my long-term plan is to then come back and use whatever i learned in law school or if i decide to just go to grad school or do a dual program back to the community like for me i just don't see my future not including my neighborhood anytime soon it's it's just like it's hard to explain but it's like so integral to my life and just what it means like i want to have children in san francisco and just even saying that is one wild um but two it's like having grown up in san francisco i grew up in a very different time like obviously and i especially with a lot of the tech sector seeping into san francisco especially with a lot more like visible racism and xenophobia like we just had you know that viral video of a brown boy like damn near being like choked for playing loud music like to imagine having a brown child in san francisco is scary but i also believe that like you need to like i i believe in reclaiming space and the mission has always been a transient space so it's not just latino it's not just for latinos right but i need to make like for me it's it's important to make sure that latino visibility doesn't disappear that central american visibility is also present and that we make it a welcoming place where other narratives couldn't also participate because we have a big caribbean like population carnaval. Here. We have a carnaval yeah here. we have carnaval but carnaval is like respectfully because i know if anyone from the mission is listening to us we like girl you better tread lightly it's very like still to me chicano like um, you know which is like not carnaval then to me <laughs> no they still have like your um like traditional elements of carnaval but you know there is this whole lowrider like procession that happens there's a lot of like central american visibility that does happen for like a day um and then you have some elements of the caribbean uh, community present as well it's like a big salad it is a salad of all the different communities present in the mission yeah it's interesting and also going back to like how do you start the cultural arts is a really good place to start like if you like plays if you like art walks if you like just going to public events that is a really good place to start. That's where um, I like really got technically my first official uh, play, way to indulge in, not indulge. That was my first job in like actually getting paid to do community work was through the arts. And I think what people like also, I don't know if they're like aware, but people when we have like conversations about community organizing, uh, we forget that the arts have always been integral in the way that we protest, in the way that we market our campaigns, art is the centerpiece right because art is an easier way to have people from all backgrounds participate and like be able to engage in a way that isn't completely ostracizing yeah yeah no i i I completely agree there's so many ways to build to like community organize too and it's like even if you have like a garage Mm -hmm. like you can have an open mic and you can foster a community art space or Mm -hmm. like a performance space or there's literally just so many ways that you can do it. You can, like, just even going to a food bank and, mm-hmm. like, volunteering there. Like, you can volunteer at whatever the fuck you think is interesting. Yeah. Or if you're queer, like, if you have an LGBT center near you. And if you don't even feel like you have the accessibility or anything, like, the way that you can do online. Like, online community space, uh, online community activism i guess feels like it's only online but you can definitely take it offline but yeah. still be primarily online if you're that's why with Puchicabos, i'm always trying to make sure that we promote events like not just in los angeles events in fucking new mexico events mm-hmm. in new york events in san francisco the bay area everywhere you know like if you are informed and like your cousin comes up to you and they're queer and they don't know what to do like they're mm-hmm. shy they're embarrassed to talk about it like you even just recommending them a book like you recommending them like a place to go or give if you have a family member that's undocumented giving them like a know your rights like 
just like she or something that's already enough that's like community organizing in itself or you yeah. you are providing a resource and providing a resource and accessibility and I accessibility like accessibility is so key and like you know it, i have friends who are always like what can i do like and and there are levels of like comfort right in organizing like they don't visibly want to be outside they don't visibly want to do this i'm like that's totally okay and a lot of times like like people like didn't pena in like saying that and i'm like look that doesn't make you a bad person like that's fine we all like for example i have like an extrovert introvert like personality so like i'm comfortable in different spaces and i have friends who are very introverted and they just kind of want to do something small and it's like a lot of my friends drink right mm-hmm. and so i've had one friend who like asked her local bar to give 10 percent to a cause that she was really passionate about and that was amazing i had another friend who she had a brunch and she was like can everyone bring like a few extra pads or tampons that are new so that we can donate them to this women's center right like something as small i feel like when pe- people think community organizing they think this grand large scale but it could also just be like your small community like that's why i think everyone is is, is a community organization yeah. to some degree even like you know our communities are, are notorious for community organizing without even without thinking that there's like a name for it you know like my mom's done that where we've had way leftover foods and like um, at different family events she'll package them all in like little tra- like trays that she could get at the dollar store and like hand it out to people in the building and it's like that in itself like knowing well also she's done like the, the groundwork right knowing like who needs extra like like food support and she just does that for like a day and i'm like you don't have to do it every Ooh, day you know what someone I, mean? that I just thought of check in on your elders dude yeah your the, elders. the elder the elderly population i work with a lot of elders mm-hmm. uh at my job and the elder population it's really sad because especially widowed women yeah they that's like i feel like the majority of the people that i work with are completely forgotten and they're they were, isolated they're so isolated mobility is a massive issue a lot of them can't take public transportation anymore yeah. and like checking in on your elders man like making sure that the that the abuelita down the street like does she have like someone to hang out with yeah. like does she you know just like being like are you okay like how are your kids like just like giving them food ma- inviting them to places like making engaging. sure engaging with them or your own fucking abuelito <laughs> like <laughs> uh just like uh, that's something that has been so real like we talk about youth 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 yeah. so much and obviously the youth is important not saying they're not but like we really really at like as a society and in, in our social structures and everything we always forget about the old people mm-hmm. and it's like a lot of us don't want to think about old people that need like constant in-house care mm-hmm. or things like that so it's like if you fuck with old people like go go help them out because that that is i think one of the most like under like resourced areas to me probably even more than education and no yeah it's definitely an under-resourced uh demographic population like even this whole what's it called pod episode i haven't brought up elders at all and like to be really honest it's not like i i don't work with elders right but like it is an integral part like whenever it comes up i'm like yes you're right but it's like a lot of my work has been around like youth and like just a younger generation but having worked in now with a different organization who does transnational work they do a lot of work with young children and elders like in between is like very rare but for them they're like these are the two severely underrepresented communities so like now it's in my um vernacular in like my immediate environment where like elderly support is yeah, something that's senior present. care senior health care is the biggest especially and there's a lot here. of abuse that happens senior abuse yeah like yeah. they get shipped off to 
not really really poorly serviced like senior centers and they get abused yeah. and making sure like who like what are senior resources in our area like making sure that uh our convalescent homes and all this stuff are like actually like like doing like yeah. real good things with these old people like making sure they're not like and every community has elders like, every community, every community has, has elders. elders so like go find an elder and like make sure that they're okay like if I, I work with like home repair and like uh home ownership and stuff so a lot of these are elderly homeowners yeah. and some of them still have lead paint that's crazy in their homes yeah. so it's like making like if you have like a theo that's in construction and maybe you want to sponsor like Paint, like repainting their home or fixing their windows like or i i knew some people with stairs that they hadn't used over 20 years like they closed the door to those stairs and they just like just i can't no access to i that? can't even go down these I, they have to go through the back or the front or whatever so like making sure like they get like a set of fucking stairs like, yeah something yeah so it's like maybe connecting them to a resource like connecting them to like people who are down to like Get them new fucking stairs, well, you know, like, like or just handrails. Handrails are sorry. Handrails crucial. Handrails are so crucial. A lot of these people like they don't have like toilets and like showering is like so, so hard, hard for the elderly. So handrails is like the number one thing at our organization. So it's like making sure that if you don't even know how to do anything, just learn how to install a handrail and put it in an old lady's house, mm-hmm. and there you go. That's you helping the community right there. Ha- a handrail program, like, and I think. <laughs> That's a that would, that would thing. and that shit would fucking pop. Like I'm not even joking. No, know? I know, I know. Yeah, and I think like I think something you touched up on um, is following up. I think in a lot of like I said earlier, community organizing has been like very reactive, and like uh, a lot of spaces are also very proactive before you know reactive moments. But following up after things are done is just as important because you need to make sure that like the work you've done is sustainable. If it's not sustainable, then there needs to be another way to organize around that issue um and checking up is important because i just think like community organizing should be defined by its like sustainability to some degree because for a community to organize around the same issue for 50 years is not fair and it's not like that shouldn't be the reality but that's also because of various external factors also like racism inaccessibility to like institutions of power we have to keep organizing around the same things. I know we're pushing right now as a community or certain communities for like immigration reform, but it's like, okay, we've been doing this for a really long time. How do we also like, then there's now, I think in my opinion, like part of the organizing element, it's like our elected officials and who we elect is incredibly important. People who have access to making legislation is just as important on the local and federal level outside of like, I know I mentioned immigration, but outside of that as well. And so, you know, like a good way to take online community you know it's funny i feel like we talked like 10 percent of online community <laughs> i know more offline but it's just like being like two two folks coming from like an internet platform right it's like this is stuff that we do offline and i think that like i think folks also have to understand like d- depending where you are the internet makes it very easy to co-opt offline organizing mm-hmm. and i think that like normalizing that behavior is not okay it dismisses and erases the voices of the people not necessarily organizing but of the people who are affected does that make sense I like agree. the voices of the organizers in my opinion are not as important like my voice should not be more important than the, than someone who's getting evicted or someone who's dealing with um, food scarcity issues or with domestic violence the people affected and at literally the front line of the issue 
are the ones like that is their voice and to co-opt or to perform you know your activism around that is like i think more damaging than not on the internet i think that also because like for example instagram right like it's literally instant gratification you read see something and you just like move on if you read something and someone has co-opted something and you just like skip over it you're subconsciously also consuming that as like yeah that's okay that's fine whatever and normalizing that behavior again is like super like in my opinion damaging and just give the mic and I know people have said this before, but just give the mic to those affected and who are, you know, the, I, I'm being repetitive, but just like at the front lines of it all. It's crucial. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a really great way to close out. And thank you, Gabby, for like co-hosting this with me. I know that we, this is a topic that is like very important to you and I. We have talked about this like at length outside of this mm-hmm. pod. And I mean, I've seen Gabby in action, like, and <laughs> it's like intense, but it's like, good you know it's like the good intensity it's the intensity (laughs) that you want and i and we talk about it all the time like we feel like we see ourselves in each other a lot yeah we do so it's like she sees my intensity yeah and and it's but it's like a an intensity for good (laughs) (laughs) um but with that said like we are all flawed like people of course um and i think that like before we close out i think that's another thing like your community organizers are not like immune of being like flawed people we outside of we are also more than our community work i think that's Mm -hmm. what people also forget like outside of my community work i'm an artist i'm a daughter i'm someone's partner i'm also just someone figuring it out like in a lot of ways on paper i look like i figured it out all out but it's like no like a lot of adults we're just like going with the flow a lot of it is also pretending you know to just like be okay this is definitely for like another time but like you know the the capacity and like we we are also also like human beings with like mental health you know it is important to also be forgiving of people um but to also understand community organizers are not like the spokespeople for movements they are just tools of a bigger movement and i think that's really important and yeah i see a lot of myself in you (laughs) um i think you're amazing and i appreciate the way like you organize you know and like identify with the way you do it in a lot of different ways i know there are a lot of things that you and i have talked about offline about organizing that we did not touch upon like right now there's also a lot to be said about transnational organizing right and so all this other stuff but like yeah thank you for having me (laughs) is what i'm trying to say um i appreciate your work i appreciate the way um and really value your intentions and how you uh, use your online platform to really put on offline work because that's just as important and I feel like that is one of the positive ways to use the internet because the internet can be a beautiful and very dark place all at the same time yes and seeing just how you you navigate this and also shout out to Sam um, oh you know? yeah oh yeah <laughs> hey, Sam. sorry I forgot that he was the <laughs> <laughs> um is to me like I love it so thank you no thank you for for being here thank you for letting me stay at your place i've been again anytime for like three days already <laughs> like she's, so i'm like already gonna get kicked out and i gotta go no, i gotta go all. do my own thing but I'm, I'm excited and i'm really sad that i've met gabby like just straight up a month before i'm like moving away which is sad but but our friendship will transcend cities i will be where you are you will come where i am and i know that this will this will be a sustainable a sustainable friendship <laughs> like of friendship course of, of, of course sorts, yes so yeah thank you so much um so yeah we're gonna close out bye bye, bye. <laughs>